Well, it is a joy and a privilege to be here, um, although I do wish the circumstances that brought me here were slightly uh, different. Um, but uh, it is a joy to be here and to worship the Lord together, and we're going to be in the Word together. In fact, I encourage you to take your copy of God's Word uh, and turn to Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to look at a story this morning that uh, my guess is most of you, if you've spent any time in church at all, are familiar with. Um, and yet, my guess is that most of us have probably not considered this story at an adult level either. It's in all my kids', kids Bibles, um, and yet in my 35 years of church life, I don't think I've ever heard anybody uh, present this text from the pulpit either. So that's not a condemnation on the church, it's just I think this is a story worth uh, paying careful attention to. It's the story of Cain and Abel. It's really the story of Cain. Abel's kind of a, a side character and a poor victim uh, in this story. But this is really the story of God's dealing uh, with Cain. And although most of us, as I said, know the basics of this story, we, we don't give much attention to this. We know that, that, that Cain kills Abel, and that's about the extent of it. But this story tells us key truths about, about God about the heart and condition of men and particularly our sinfulness and how God graciously, even when we are kicking so hard against him, how God graciously and repeatedly calls us to faith in himself. And in this story, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope to bring that out for us this morning. Why in the world would we, in the 21st century, take a step back and look at a story that takes us very back to the beginning of time and the, one of the first stories we are told of, of the history of humanity? Because the struggles of the human heart, the challenges we face, and the sin that we battle with is no different today than it was then. In fact, as I studied this text this week, I thought, my goodness, this is like reading a commentary on the 21st century approach to God. And so this is a very relevant, a relevant story for us, and I hope uh, that we will see not how to respond to God like Cain, but how we, contrary to our culture, ought to respond to God. So let's read Genesis chapter 4, uh, down through, uh, starting verse 1 down through verse 16. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've begotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his brother, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. 
When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from, oh, and away from, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Lord God, this is your word. It is true, and you have given it to us that we might know how to worship you, how to be in a right relationship with with you, and how to live in light of who you are. And so, Lord God, I pray very humbly that your spirit might move in our midst this morning, that he would rest upon me as I proclaim the truths of your word, and that it might move in all of our hearts, causing those who do not yet know you to believe and to be saved from their sin, and causing those of us who do believe to be transformed into the image of Christ our Savior. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Genesis 4. Um, as we look at this story, you know, we're just kind of parachuting into it. I do want to build a little bit of the context around it, although I'm pretty sure you know what comes in the first three chapters of Genesis. Most of us do, but, but there's just a couple of things I want to highlight for us because they, they play into Genesis chapter 4. So the Bible begins... With the creation of mankind, as God speaks everything into existence over the course of six days. And on that sixth day, he creates the pinnacle of his creation, Adam and Eve. And they, alone of all of his creation, are said to be made in the image of God. They alone are made with a unique relationship to God, and it is their job to bear his image in the world. And since they're made in his image, God then commissions them at the end of Genesis chapter 1, to imitate him by ruling over, caring for, and filling up his creation. When you look at the commission there that that God gives to them, that this is what you're to do. This is how you bear my image in this world of perfection that I have created. When you step into Genesis 2, he takes a step back and tells us a little bit more about the details of how Adam and Eve came into existence and how God planted a garden in Eden, the Bible says. So the garden wasn't all of Eden, but the garden was in Eden. You see that, that Cain leaves Eden this morning. They were already kicked out of the garden, and now he leaves the region of Eden and goes to the east of it. So, But he plants this garden and places Adam and Eve in it, and it is the perfect environment for them to fulfill this commission to rule, to steward, and to fill up. Um, It's the perfect environment for them to fulfill the the command of God. And as you read through Genesis 2, there's this very interesting feature that is given over and over again. God communicates his truth to Adam and Eve. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to do. He's giving them knowledge all along the way. They're receiving knowledge directly from the Lord, which is, as we step into Genesis 3, what sets the stage for the sin in Genesis 3, right? Because in the midst of that garden, God put two trees, the tree of life, which they were allowed to eat from, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were not supposed to eat from. Why? 
because God was their source of truth. And all along the way, God was giving them his truth. And the great failure of Adam and Eve was to reject God's word and accept the lie of the serpent to to believe his false truth. And so rather than continuing to get their knowledge of good and evil directly from God as they had up to this point, they decided to try and get it for themselves by eating from the fruit of the tree. And of course, this brings death. No, it didn't bring their physical death immediately, although their bodies immediately began to start to break down over the slow decay of time. But more importantly, it brought death to their relationship with God. It severed their relationship with God. But into this new environment created by mankind's sin, God continues to give truth. Is even in the curse that he pronounces over sin, God begins to introduce us to a new truth and a truth that will dominate the rest of Scripture clear through to the end of Revelation. And, that, and this is the truth, that someone would come. In Genesis 3, it says that someone would be born. A seed would be born of the woman who would undo the chaos that has been brought upon mankind because of sin, that this Savior would undo what the serpent had enticed them to do. And so in Genesis 3.15, we get the first word in Scripture about a coming Savior. It's the first word in Scripture about Christ. And then as God is done pronouncing the curse over sin on mankind, we are told that God gives them a picture of how this Savior, this promised coming seed, would function. In Genesis 3.21, where we are told, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Their sin caused shame, and they were ashamed of their nakedness, and they tried to cover it, and so God creates this incredible picture of what Christ is going to do on the cross by killing an animal and covering their shame. And it begins to teach us that man can only worship God through a mediatory sacrifice, through a substitute, through the merit of someone else. So that's all the backdrop of everything that's been said in Genesis up to this point. And that then brings us here to Genesis chapter 4, where we find two men, both of which are engaged in the worship of God. One of them is accepted, and the other one is rejected. And so the first thing that we see here in Genesis 4 is that there are two separate approaches to the worship of God. Adam and Eve have two sons. It's interesting how how the Bible can just move the storyline forward so quickly. In two verses, we cover at least 20 years, probably more, in the life of creation history. But Adam and Eve, they conceive, they have a son, they name him Cain, they conceive again, they have his brother Abel, and they grow up. They've got careers. Uh, Abel, I understand Abel. He's a livestock guy. I grew up on a cattle ranch. I understand animals. Don't do the dirt thing so much, but I, I get the animal thing. Cain grows up, and he's a farmer. He probably would have liked Ontario, um, right? This flat farm ground that's so rich and, and yields its produce uh, to us so well. So they, they farm, the both of them. or Cain farms. Abel deals with livestock, and they are... Existing, They are living in this world. But then what Genesis 4 does for us is record for us the first time where we see men worshiping God. I am certain that Adam and Eve worshiped God between these points, but we aren't told that. This is the first picture into the worship of God that we are given 
in the Bible. And there are some real similarities here between Cain and Abel's approach to God. First, they both understood it was their duty to worship God. Mankind was created for the purposes of God. We were created to worship God. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that that what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We were created for God, to worship him, to bring him glory, and to enjoy the greatness of who he is. And Cain and Abel both understand that that is their duty. So they both bring an offering. They both engage in the worship of God. The second similarity we see is they both bring the fruits of their labors. Cain's a farmer, and he brings of his crops. Abel deals with livestock, and he brings a firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the third thing we see in this text is they both desire to be accepted by God. That's why they worshiped. They wanted God's acceptance. They wanted God's approval. They wanted to hear, well done. Cain wanted that. How do I know? Because he was upset when he didn't get it. When his offering was not accepted, Cain is then angry and his face, his countenance, is how most are probably more familiar with it, fell. Why? Because he wanted God's acceptance. He wanted his approval. So why is it then that Abel is accepted and Cain is rejected? Well, let's deal with Abel first. Abel's offering was accepted because he followed the revealed will of God. What did Cain bring, or Abel bring? He brought an animal sacrifice. Well, we don't really, we're not told much about this animal that was killed. We don't know what type of animal it was to cover Adam and Eve with, and there's a lot of history gap there that we're not told about. But in the same way God communicated to Adam and Eve before they sinned how they were to worship him, I am certain that God communicated to Adam and Eve after they sinned how they were to worship him in this environment. And he gave them a picture of that, and it becomes very clear as you get further into your Bible that animal sacrifice was a required element to cover over mankind's sin. And Abel knew this, and so he's following the revealed will of God by offering an animal. Yes, he was a keeper of livestock, but he offered the firstborn, the choicest of his flock, and the fat portions with it in a burnt offering to the Lord. And the other thing that we know from Scripture is that Abel offered his gift in faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, the Hall of Faith says this about Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so in that verse, and there's a lot there in that verse, not going to focus on it, but we're told that Cable, that Abel, Cable, Abel offered this gift as an act of faith. He believed God's word and tried to follow it faithfully. His acceptance was not because of his obedience. His acceptance was because he believed God. And his sacrifice was a picture of belief and trust in what God had promised to Adam and Eve in the garden that someday a Savior would come. Cain's gift is not accepted. Why? Because Cain attempted to approach God on his terms. 
He did not come according to the revealed will and truth of God. Instead, he came up with his own sacrifice. And I'm sure he brought the best of the produce of his labors. I'm sure that he brought a, a, a generous gift. And I'm sure he came in the sincerity of his heart. And yet, he did not come on God's terms. And his response to God when God says, when God does not accept his gift is then to be very angry and for his attitude, his demeanor to be controlled by that anger. I think that's what it means for his face to fall, that this black cloud has entered over his life and it is now dominating his actions. He was angered that God would not accept him on his terms. And this is where, to be honest with you, as I began to study this text this week, I could see so much of our culture written all over it. We tend to think that if, if we come to God in sincerity, if my motives are good, then God will accept me. If I just, the genuineness of my heart is enough, and God will be pleased with this. In fact, on, a, on the counter side, our culture has this huge fear of rote religion. We don't want to have to follow a set of rules or guidelines. No, no, we just come with sincerity and express yourself in worship according to, to how you are. And I am no fan of rote religion. Scripture is clear. In fact, two weeks from now, I'm already planning this. I'm going to be preaching a sermon at, at my church that... Uh, well, the church I serve, it's not my church, but the church that I serve uh, that talks about in, I'm going to do it from 1 Samuel, where Saul offers the sacrifice because he, need, he thinks he needs it for God to be pleased with him, but he violated God's word and, 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 and Saul, or Samuel comes to Saul and says, God takes no delight just in the offering of sacrifices. He wants a pure and undefiled heart. He wants obedience. He wants your heart. So I am no fan of cold and rote religion. And yet in our culture, we have forgotten that God has revealed in his word how it is that we are to worship him. And so we're quick to want to express worship on our terms and really keep arguing that it, it, as long as it flows from a sincere heart, then God must be pleased with it. God will accept it. But I seriously doubt that Cain had ulterior, insincere, well, he did have ulterior, but he had insincere, insincere motives here. He came to worship God, but he wanted to do it on his terms. He wanted to bring the merit of his works. I produce this from the ground, and I'm going to offer it to God. He didn't want to have to go to his brother, perhaps, and get one of his lambs for sacrifice. He wanted to approach God on his terms, and it reveals because he's violated the truth of God, it reveals a lack of faith. And it's a constant reminder to us men and women that we must approach God on his terms and not our own. And it's his truth, not our emotions, not our desires, not our preferences that must dictate how we worship God. God has laid down in this book how it is we are to approach him. And we need to be pursuing him in that way. So Cain has departed from the revealed will of God and he is now in sin and because of it, because he wants to approach God on the merits of his works rather than dependent 
on God's grace. His offering is not received by God. How does God respond to this? Verses 6 and 7. Well, I see, most people see this harsh pronouncement. What I see there is grace. God divinely intervening by his grace. Cain has rejected God, and he knows that God has not received his offering, and now he's angry. What does God do with that? Well, he issues this incredible warning. Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain, if you would come to me on my terms, if you would come according to the revealed will, my truth that I've given to you, you would have been accepted. The reason you weren't accepted is you tried to approach me on my, on your terms. God is just simply communicating to Cain where he's fallen short. Why? So he'll repent. So that he will come to God on his terms. So he will worship him in spirit and in truth as he should. Cain's response was a demonstration that his heart was ruled by sin. And God warns him graciously that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Sin brings death. Sin is a consuming fire. Its, con- its desire is contrary to us, and it is seeking to destroy us, to keep us separated from God. A God, though, says it is the duty of mankind to rule over their sinful desires. And so God here is not throwing the book at Cain. Instead, he is graciously warning him to amend his ways. If he'll approach God on God's terms, he will be accepted just like his brother was, because his brother, too, was a sinner in need of God's forgiveness. And he sought it through God's ways. Just two quick applications. We think about this gracious intervention of God here, and it's just first that that although mankind is enslaved to sin, when Adam and Eve sinned, they enslaved all of us to sin. It is our master until we come to faith in Christ. But that does not give us the excuse to pursue sin or remove the fact that we remain accountable to God for our sinfulness. We do. And why we, too, must be looking for a mediator a substitute sacrifice in our place. Now for Christians, because their hope is fixed on Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, the the Passover lamb who, who bears away our sin, one of the most beautiful things I love is in the Old Testament, all these sacrifices, it tells us that that God was, or that we were atoning for our sins. The word atone means to cover over, to to just kind of make a covering for it. You will not find the word atonement in your New Testament. You know why? Because Christ didn't cover our sin. He bore it away in his body on the cross. All these animals were just a temporary covering for the saints in the Old Testament waiting for Christ to come who would bear it away. And we no longer need atoning sacrifices because we have the perfect Lamb of God who has done it for us. And in doing it, Christ has broken the back of sin in our lives giving us the capacity by the Spirit of God to walk in victory over sin. But it doesn't happen by chance. We need the warning of God to Cain here. You must 
rule over it. Because although we're given a new nature in Christ, although we are free from the power of sin, and we have the ability now to be reconciled to God in Christ, this new nature is housed in a body of flesh that Paul says in Romans 7 is still enslaved to sin. And so we have these two things in us, our new nature in Christ that wants to please God and our flesh which is still enslaved to sin and they're, they're, they're constantly warring against each other. We must rule over sin lest it consume us. So Cain sins. God graciously offers him forgiveness and reconciliation through this warning that he issues. What is Cain's response to that? Well, his response is simple. He rejects God's grace for the second time. He tried to say, I don't need God's grace. I'm going to come on my terms. When he realized that was, that was wrong and God graciously calls him to repentance, he responds by rejecting God's grace in verse 8. Rather than hearing and receiving God's word and turning from his sin, he does actions that further harden him against God as he kills his brother. It's very simple, right? Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. God had told him, rule over your sin, rule over your desires. And what does he do? He rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Important truth for us there. This is the first time we see that there are two groups of people in this world. There are those who believe in God and those who have rejected God. And those who reject God are constantly trying to extinguish the light of those who believe in God. John 3, Jesus tells us, John 3, verses 19 and 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So here's Abel, offers a sacrifice to the Lord. It's accepted by God. God is pleased with him. What's Cain's response? Rather than turning from his sin and imitating the faith of his brother, I need to kill my brother so that his righteousness is not shedding light on my evil deeds. He kills him. It's a rejection of God. It's a further teaches us that sin brings death and destruction to those who are ruled by it. What is God's response to it this time? Fire from heaven? consume him? No, instead we find God coming a second time, graciously intervening in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Uh, We're talking about the all-knowing sovereign of the universe, all-present. He knows, and he's going to make that plain later in the text, he knows exactly what's happened to Abel. So why ask Cain? It's the same thing he did to Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned. Adam, where are you? Uh, God knew. You're hiding behind in the bushes under your fig leaf is not working. God knows. Why ask the question? Drawing them out. When God called to Adam, he comes out. He slinks into the presence of a holy God that he knows he's, he's no longer fit to be in and answers his question truthfully. Yeah, he makes excuses and blames his wife and there's that whole mess there. But, but we see the same thing here. This is God graciously calling to Cain again. Cain, where's your brother? Cain's response, rejection. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I do not know. Yeah, you do, you liar. You know exactly where he is. I'm not my brother's keeper. He tries to pull the wool over God's eyes. God graciously calling. 
man rejecting. Again, it's just over and over and over again. He even lies to God, says, I don't know where he is. I'm not my brother's keeper. Now what does God do? He pronounces judgment in verses 10 through 12 on Cain. First, he he says, look, you can't pull the wool over my eyes. Verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I know, Cain. Don't tell me you don't know where your brother is. I am here confronting you with the sin that you have committed. Most of us chafe and kick against God when he reveals sin in our life because it's uncomfortable and we don't like it. But the reality is God does this because he's a loving and gracious God who knows the destructive power of sin in our lives. And so he brings it to light that we might turn from it and be free from it by his grace. God is a loving God. God is a gracious God, but he is also a God of truth. And he cannot just wink at our sin and turn away from it. So he identifies Cain's sin, and then he does pronounce judgment on him in verses 11 and 12. And what is very interesting about verses 11 and 12 is it's a revisit to the curse that God gave to Adam in Genesis 3, where the ground becomes cursed, and farming now is a terrible hard project. Every farmer has an ongoing and constant battle with weeds. And we have to work hard to make these things, uh, to to, to cause the ground to to yield its produce for us. And God now tells Cain, that curse I pronounced on your dad, now you have it in an even heightened way. The ground will not, he says, yield its strength to you. But what is missing here? God does not kill Cain, which is what he deserves. He deserves the instant judgment of God. All of our sin does, but he doesn't get it. And what does that tell us about God? It's his grace again to the sinner, to the vile, guilty one, offering him the opportunity to repent. One of the beauties is that as long as there is breath in our lungs, we have the opportunity to turn from our sin to belief in him. There was a man growing up, um, I grew up out west in an area where most of the economy was, was logging uh, industry, so about 75% of the county I grew in uh, got its, its income from the timber industry, either by working out in the woods, cutting trees down, driving a logging truck to get it to the mill, or working at the mill. So if you didn't, if you didn't uh, work in the lumber industry, that was, you know, loggers are an interesting lot. A lot of them are pretty hardened by their sin. And one of them uh, his, had married a, a lady in our church, and, but he wasn't saved, and he got cancer. And my dad went in and shared the gospel with him. And, and, and you know what? He repented, and he believed. And three weeks later, we put him in the grave. If there is breath in our lungs, there is opportunity for repentance and to be restored and reconciled to God. So, so the fact that God does not instantly pour out his full and final judgment on Cain gives him the opportunity once again to repent. And what's Cain's response? Verses 13 and 14. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. That's not fair, God. That's beyond the burden that I can carry. Furthermore, okay, you've driven me from the ground. I'm going to be a fugitive. And then what does he fear the most? That someone's going to come along and do to him 
what he's done to his brother. Someone will kill me. This isn't fair, God. I can't carry this. No kidding. None of us can carry the weight of our sin and none of us can carry the consequences of it in and of ourselves, which is why we must run over and over again to Christ, that he must bear it away on our behalf. Cain, I can't do this. It's more than I can bear. The other thing that's very interesting here is who does he blame for this? See this in the text. Verse 14. Cain speaking, God says, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. This is more than I can bear, God. You're driving me away, and you are hiding your face from me. Why was Cain not right with God? His own sin. What is he doing? He's turning around now and blaming God for what is happening to him. It's your fault. And now somebody's going to kill me, and I don't want that. We need to understand our enemy. Sin causes us to view ourselves as victims and everyone else, particularly God, as unfair in their judgment and or punishment of it. Sin causes us to sit back and say, oh, poor me. My sin is justified. My sin is okay. And everybody else that doesn't like it around me, it's, it's their fault. I'm a victim of my circumstances. God, you're driving me away from your presence. No, no. You are pursuing the putridness of your sin and ostracizing yourself from God. And what does God do with this? Verse 15, we have a final expression of grace. Someone's going to kill me, God. No, no, God says. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold, and the Lord puts a mark on Cain, lest anyone found him should attack him. Okay, Cain, you don't want to be killed for this. I will withhold that. Once again, extending him a lease on life, extending him the opportunity to repent and be saved. And Cain's response to this in verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. John 3, evil men love the darkness of their sins and they cannot, they will not come to the light. Why? Because they don't want to face the fact that on the inside they are disgustingly broken and repulsive in the sight of God. Cain regretted the consequences of his sin. Yet he refused to turn from his sin to belief in the God who repeatedly extended his grace to him in warning him against the sin before it happened, in calling him to repentance after the sin took place, and by continuing to extend the gracious opportunity to return to him for the forgiveness of sin. We see here the character of man when they are hardened by sin and the loving and gracious character of God in calling them to faith and repentance. I'm enjoying preaching here because there's no clock on the back wall. I don't have a clue how long I've been going here. <laughs> I preached in a church once where they had a great big one behind the pastor's head, but not one on the back wall so everyone could roll their eyes. Let me try and wrap this up for us and say, okay, so what? What do we do with this? Albert Moeller has this great quote. He says, most people think that what their problem is is something that's been done to them and the solution is found within them. 
In other words, they have an alien problem that's solved with an inner righteousness. When what the Bible says is that we have an inner problem that is solved with an alien righteousness. Cain refused to recognize his faults. Cain refused to recognize his sin, and because of it, he was unable to find repentance and faith in God. Even though God, over and over again, extended his grace to him, Cain's problem wasn't that he did not understand that God existed. His problem wasn't that he didn't understand God deserved to be worshipped. His problem wasn't sincerity with which he pursued his worship. His problem was that he sought to come to God on the merits of his own actions. And he sought to establish his own approach to God. And he was incised against God when God was not pleased with his counterfeit worship. And we, apart from Christ, are no different than Cain. No, I've never killed anyone. But my heart is just as enslaved to sin apart from the gracious intervention of God. And God's solution to our inner problem was Christ. One day a seed would come from the woman and that seed was Christ. Prefigured as by all these sacrifices in the Old Testament to cover over our sins. But Christ comes not to cover them but to, to bear them in his body on the cross and to bear them away. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west. That is how far God has removed our sins from us. And so rather than making excuses for our sin, we must admit our unworthiness. We must repent of our sin, turn from it, and come to God through faith in Christ, trusting in the merits of his works and not in the works of our hands. There's a lot of people in the church today who've grown up in the church their whole life who think that God's going to accept them because of the works of their hands, and it's not true. We are only accepted based on faith in Christ, who alone can make us righteous. But when that faith comes, circle back to Abel, it's going to manifest itself in the proper worship of God. Abel's faith caused him to come to God on his terms, not to earn his right standing, but because he believed God's word, he would follow God's word, and he would approach God by God's ordained means, which for him was through sacrifice, looking forward to Christ. And Cain's lack of faith is what caused him to seek God on his terms and create a false worship that was displeasing to God. James tells us that faith without works is dead. Where there is no obedience, it casts a real shadow of doubt over the authenticity of our faith. I don't know about you guys, but in our church we teach our kids that the kids' song says, obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. We don't obey because we're trying to earn God's favor. But when we understand what God has done, we obey because we have his favor. So where genuine faith resides in us, it manifests itself in worship, both corporately as a body and also individually, privately, in our homes throughout the week. And that worship will follow the clear instruction of God's word. Not the rote religion of works, but rather a pure, from a pure desire to worship God in the way that he delights in and not in the way that gratifies our fleshly desires. Are you coming to God today 
like Abel? Or are you coming like Cain? And the only solution is Christ, on whom our faith must rest. Let's pray.